When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to the LSQ Podcast. Thanks so much for pressing play on episode 14. I'm your host, Jenny LSQ, excited to share my latest interview with Death Cab for Cutie main man Ben Gibbard, whom I've been lucky enough to spend, I don't know, maybe a dozen hours with of interview time over the years. And in the course of that, I've really loved getting to know him as a person. He's, he's become a friend, but also getting to pick his brain about his creative process. As I will say, Gibbard is one of my favorite modern songwriters, and their albums continue to blow me away. Their new one, Thank You For Today, is so great and among my favorites in their catalog. And actually, Ben and I met up in Los Angeles earlier this year when Death Cab were finishing up that new LP, as you'll hear us talk a bit about at the outset of the conversation. Plus, you know, each episode of LSQ features something from my archive, and since I have interviewed Ben so much over the years, this episode's archive clip will also be from Ben. Welcome, Ben Gibbard, to my podcast, which I'm so pleased to have you here. Oh, I, gave, I started, I started uh, blowing it up to you last year when we saw each other for the Teenage Fan Club chat, um, and it's been super fun to get it to get it going. And I knew that you were spending some time here in LA, so figured while I'm here, we could do this. I obviously want to start by asking what you're willing to tell me at this point about how the new <laughs> shit's going. Like, how is it feeling? It How's feels, it feeling? It feels really good. Yeah. Yeah, it feels I I don't think I've had this much fun making a record in a very long time. Um and you know, the amount of fun you're having making a record isn't necessarily a, an indicator of its quality. <laughs> but I I I really I I really have a a really good feeling about um how this is going to turn out and I think that if people are I think people who are fans of the band um are going to really like it. I, I would be very surprised if they didn't. I mean, they might not, but right. I, I feel like I feel like we've kind of, I, I feel like we're in a place where we're really aware of what we've done and the things that have worked and not worked over the past literally 20 years of this band. And I feel like we've really honed in on a lot of the things that I think not only people like about the band, but I think things that I like about the band too. Because I, it's worth remembering that like I am my own band's biggest fan <laughs> you know right. like I started this band to because I you know w- there was music in my head that I wasn't hearing 
anywhere else. Um, so, you know, I think that I think it's kind of important to remember that, it, you know, you should be your own band's biggest fan. You should like enjoy the music as if you were hearing it like on the radio. Yeah, so yeah, playing, as opposed know. to being your harshest critic because that serves no one. You know, I think artists are their harshest critics so often that it's like no one, you know, it's like when you have see a photo of yourself and there's the one thing on your face, whatever it is for each of us that we pick immediately <clears throat> that we, it's the only thing we can see when we look at the picture at first mm-hmm. and we're like, we assume everyone sees that and mm-hmm. I would imagine it's similar when you're making a song if you if you don't if you don't err on the side of supporting yourself that you could analyze things no one else would ever find in the song it's just like a wasted road to go down or something well yeah and like i mean i i think you have to be your biggest fan and your biggest critic right and i mean you have to kind of hold yourself accountable to it like because you're you're gonna not only are you going to have to you're like you have to also play this music for a long time after you've made it so you know if somebody doesn't like you know, LP nine by Death Cab for Cutie, like they don't have to listen to it. Right. You know, but we kind of have to at least play some of it every night right. <laughs> for right. a very long time. So it has to be things that we enjoy playing. And, you know, not every record that we've made has necessarily been like that. There have, you know, I think that when people see what we tend to kind of gravitate towards in the set list, it gives fans an indication of the our favorite song, our favorite of our own songs as well. I mean, did you find that there was a, a point when you started to be aware of what happens with the reaction once the album comes out. I mean, I'm guessing the first couple of records you made, especially the first one, you know, there's no real thinking about like, well, if I say this about it, then everyone's going to think it's this or, mm-hmm. or, you know, even worrying about what potential reaction you might have. Like what Death Cab for Cutie album was the one where you thought like, no, I know that this is going to have an audience and I have to try and put it out of my head, but I am concerned about the reaction of others. Oh, plans by Alpha, by you know, it was plans by a long shot. You know, as much as at the time, I tried to kind of convince myself and psych myself into thinking that this was just another. At the time, it was just another Death Cab for Cutie record, and that you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. Right. And it was absolutely a big deal. Yeah. It was our first major label record, and you know, at the time, I was what twenty seven, twenty eight, and you know, was much more concerned with what people thought of me for a number of reasons. One was just being in your 20s. And, you know, another reason was just that we were still relatively new. I mean, that was our fifth record in seven years. So, and really transatlanticism for all intents and purposes was the first record that people heard by us, you know, more than just this, you know, indie community. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I look back on that time and realize, like, how much pressure I was putting on myself and kind of how quickly those records, you know, Translanism came out in, you know, October of 2003 and plans came out in like August of 2005. So it was less than two years later, you know, after right. the longest tour cycle we'd ever done, like a year and a half of touring. Right. You know, I was really right. like coming to the finish line with just enough songs to make the record and hoping Plus they were the, all going to work. being on a new label, let alone a major label for the first time is no small th- moment and I'm sure infects you with kind of thinking, you know what I mean? Like that you're just like, well, what do they, they, it's, we're, it's a new relationship. What do they want me to do? Um, which is a weird thing to have to factor into the mix when you're trying to just do the thing you've always done, which is write honest songs. Well, yeah. And we, you know, when we signed to Atlantic, we definitely knew we were signing up to do more work and, and, you know, we didn't sign to Atlantic to just keep doing things the way we have always done them. And I felt at the time that 
the landscape was kind of littered with indie bands that signed a record too late. Yeah. You know, that didn't capitalize on the the breakout record, but then waited another record. And then at that point, a lot of the heat was kind of right. died down. Right. So I, I think we all knew that that was the right time to do it. Um, but it didn't change the fact that when we were actually in the studio making this record, even though it was still at the time, the four of us, you know, Chris was producing the same way he had produced the previous four records and EPs and everything else. And even though we were you know, we didn't have, it still felt like the way we were always doing it. There was this looming pressure of, you know, holy shit, we're on a major label. Right. Now. Well, and once people... you have the access to this might be your chance to get a song on the radio because big record companies are better at that. I mean, that remains true. Um, I don't know. It's got to be a weird thing writing songs thinking this this really might get on the radio. But even even having said that, though, it's like the song that when I wrote it, I I kind of had a feeling it would be, you know, a hit with a lowercase h, right. you know, for us uh, with Soulmate's Body, even though the right. chorus doesn't come in for like a minute and a half. I mean, if you kind of put that song up against other songs that have been like, quote unquote, hits on the radio, on alternative radio, like the chorus is in in like 30 seconds. Right. And the structure of the song was like a verse, a weird breakdown, a second verse, and then the chorus comes in, then a bridge, and then another chorus. So the structure of it, I mean, when, the only time I got nervous in dealing with Atlantic was when they started making some really bad suggestions for edits edits to the song for the radio. And it was really important to me. And we really stuck to our guns like, no, this is this is the structure. We're not going to. I mean, there's a narr- the song has a particular narrative that's important. And, and instant. And it, it was really interesting for us as we all kind of thought that Crooked Teeth would be like that will be. We'll put out Soul Meets Body first, and that'll be like a teaser, but Crooked Teeth will be like the real single. And it was the exact opposite. I mean, Soul Meets Body did really well, and Crooked Teeth did didn't not do well, but didn't do nearly as well as Soul Meets Body. So you never can tell, I guess. When you talk about kind of learning to appreciate certain things that are that about the kinds of songs you write, I'm curious what those things are, sort of, what you think are uh, aspects of your or tendencies you have as a songwriter that you've learned to appreciate as, like, that thing you do. Well, I suppose, um, I think my best songs are the songs in which, that are, I mean, I wrote, I write a lot in first person, but I think they are the, the songs I've written that kind of set a scene in the first verse or early in the song, and they're to use a kind of played out term, they're kind of cinematic. Like they just kind of set a very lush scene and it's easy for the listener to kind of place themselves in the song. Mm-hmm. And and they tend to be the songs that deal with subject matter that people feel on a daily basis or like, or they feel even more than that, They f- when they find themselves, when they can place themselves in the song, it's moments when they feel like they are alone and hearing the song makes them feel like they're, Mm. not alone uh like what sarah said is jumps out to me as a perfect example of that like Mm -hmm. you know a song about waiting for you know like somebody in the icu is not something that is not it's hopefully a song that not a lot of people can relate to but the people who can relate to it Mm. will come up to me or they'll kind of dm me like hey that song really was important to me because i've been going through something and i that the fact that you wrote a song about this particular scene uh made me feel less alone when i was in actually living that and felt like I, I, no one could understand what I was going through. Yeah. Um, and it's, I don't say that patting myself on the back about it, but I think those are the songs that tend to kind of cut through and, and tend to mean the most to people who like the band. 
Right, right. And 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 in those instances, it's something that you've experienced as well. So there's an authenticity to it that people can, you know, just sort of detect in a way that they're not even aware of. And I guess isn't that what emo is? <laughs> I mean, you know, isn't that why, you know, this sort of uh, is my band emo dot com kind of <laughs> thing. It's just like, well, you know, it's the th- the songs when you if you really can relate to the emotion of what whatever the emotion is of the song, it pushes a button. It pu- it punches that button. It doesn't well, just push the button. Well, you just said it. I mean, you you just made an assumption that this is a true story for my life. So. And you don't know if it is or not. I don't know. So the fact that you even put it in those terms means that maybe I did a good job on that particular song. Right. <laughs> if you think it actually happened to me, which right. I won't say. Right. Way. Right. But I mean, you do or I mean, in, in previous conversations we've had, um, it, it seems like you do often, if not mostly, write sort of directly from personal experience or that songwriting occupies this place where it's it's a natural instinct to write about what's going on in your brain. Yeah, I think so. I, I think when I'm writing and I really kind of get on a a role in a particular song, it's usually because I can, from the very first couple lines, I can really see it in my mind. And it's I can either see it in my mind's eye because I'm writing, writing off a personal experience that then, you know, details are being shifted and changed for poetic license and whatnot. Mm. Or it's something that I, you know, I've had some distance from and now I'm writing writing about from a from a perspective that allows me to see it a little more clearly. Um, and I, I never, I don't keep notebooks full of lyrics. I don't like write music and then go, oh, I've got the perfect set of lyrics in this mm. book over here. I just write music and melodies and then whatever the first line of the song, the first line that kind of comes to my head usually tends to like set the scene for the rest of the song. Like on the song title and registration, I just kind of just like, you know, blab singed like the glove compartment is inaccurately inaccurately named and i was like okay well if if that's the first line of the song where do i go from there what how can i and then so then you know then that just kind of the rest of the song unfurled once i could see myself in the car opening up a glove compartment finding something right finding an old photograph and having that those memories kind of flood back um and And is that is that how you've always written sort of yeah i wish i i wish i wish i could write kind of like how well, I mean, who doesn't wish they could write like Tom Waits? But, you know, the stories about him carrying around a little notebook and and going like, you know, Orange Tree in the Sunset. That sounds like a good that sounds like a song title. And then like writes a song later, allegedly with that as the. Oh, wow. That's the chorus or that's the idea in the song. You know, he's alleged he's always carrying around a little booklet, apparently, and writing th- things down that somebody says and he hears. And he's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Right. And while I, I make attempts to do that, I I. I I don't really do it that often. It usually just is like, okay, this music and the melody that I'm kind of like uh, singing nonsense to is kind of certain syllables are jumping out, certain vowel sounds, and then they dictate where the lyric kind of heads from there. So the earliest songs you ever wrote, you were how old? Probably like 12 or 13. Right. And I kind of taught myself how to play guitar off of like a Beatles fake book that my dad had. And... And I, you know, learned some of you know the easiest Beatles songs, right? Um, which tend to be like the early ones. And then, now that I knew those chords, and I would, I really was more interested in writing my own songs and learning other people's songs. And I kind of still feel like I'm that way. Like I, there are people who just know hundreds of songs and could just sit around and just play songs all night, and that just 
it's never appealing to me like the idea of like if we were just sitting here with guitars and you're like let's play a bob dylan song like eh, i don't feel like it but even when and also i appreciate you bird on top of the tree (laughs) with your opinions um did you i mean was learning to play other songs always just a bridge to writing your own songs i mean once you wanted to play guitar did you already know that you kind of wanted to write songs or um did it take longer than that of you know initially i guess the question is then initially what made you want to play the guitar well i i took piano lessons for a long time at first and then um i you know i took kind of like kind of my mom took me to this woman who taught classical piano and my parents would do this thing where they would uh kind of they would hold something that I wanted to do and say I had to kind of jump over these hurdles before I could get to the thing I wanted to do. And in order to learn how to get electric guitar lessons, I had to take, I want to say it was like five years of piano lessons. You know, it was like as, with the idea that either I would burn out on that and not get to the right. thing I actually wanted. Right. Um, but in hindsight, it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good like tactic because right. it, it made me have to commit to something that I didn't really want to do in order to do something that I did want to do. Right. Which, as I'm saying, it actually is kind of fucked up because why can't I just why couldn't they just let me do the thing that I wanted to do rather than make me do something I didn't want to do to do something? I Do either to do? of them play instruments at all? My dad plays guitar. Yeah. Right. So there was always like a, a guitar kind of leaning against the like the wall, like an old nylon string and he would pick it up and kind of goof off on it. But I do appreciate I, I would take these piano lessons and I would learn whatever kind of rudimentary like yeah. box songs or whatever and then i would the learn... blue book the red book yeah, the yeah green I, book, whatever exactly and i would learn them <laughs> i'd learn a lot of them wrong because i liked the way that i was playing them i liked how they sounded the way i was playing them uh and then i would go in and she'd be really upset because i hadn't learned them right and i would be like well i kind of like when it goes like this instead of like this and she'd be like no that's this is bach you can't right you can't just decide so you like so it so there you go that's songwriting right there it, yeah in yeah in a way sampling or early sampling i don't know but yes, and for, from right when I started taking piano lessons, I started kind of like goofing off on right trying to write songs, but I didn't I didn't really know what I was doing. And I guess when when you're twelve or thirteen, like at least at the time, like it was sound, like songs that sounded like Dead Milkman ripoffs or right, you know, Descendants rip ripoffs or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just n- nothing memorable. Which is a wonderful zone, yeah. a wonderful zone. <laughs> So when when do you think you started to develop kind of the earliest buds of the sensibility that you have now as a as a lyricist as a vocalist as a songwriter? Um, were you already recording as Death Cab for Cutie? Do you feel like when that happened, or was there any earlier stuff where you're like, oh yeah, this is what feels like the zone for me? Strangely enough, I I, I was in bands in high school and then in early college, and I and I don't feel like I ever really hit my stride until I started recording songs under the name Death Cab for Cutie. Like I was in a band called Pinwheel in Bellingham, Washington, uh, with a guy named Justin Kennedy who lives here in LA and is in a really good band called uh, Army Navy. Okay. Um and they've been they've been, you know, playing around here and touring a bit for some years and and we were in this band together and uh he had his songs, I had my songs and I was thought my songs were okay, but they never really I you know, even at the time I was like, I don't know, these aren't that great and 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 then I had this kind of inkling to write some songs under to do like a side project, even though I, I had five songs in this other band. It wasn't like I had a lot of songs. And over the course of two or three months, I wrote six or seven songs like really quickly. And they, I was really interested in all of them. And I really thought that they were I thought they were really good. And I was like, wow, these are actually really these are way better than the songs I wrote for this other band. And and, I, you know, I played everything myself. I re, you know, record everything on four track and. 
around that time I had been hanging out with Chris Swalla and he he had just bought a reel to reel A track and he was like, Well, we should record these songs together. You play everything, I'll produce it and then we'll make like a tape. And, you know, I think six of those songs ended up being on the first Death Cab for Cutie record. So, you know, I was twenty, twenty one where all of a sudden I just had this creative breakthrough where things started kind of flowing the way I, I wanted them to at the time. And I know you were at that point, you were trying to go into Seattle to see shows when you could with friends. Uh, and I mean, in the years leading up to that, when you were kind of figuring out the music that you wanted to play, would, would you say that the proximity in, the, in time and space of all of that breakthrough grunge stuff um, had an impact on you as a developing songwriter? I mean, in, in terms of an awareness of like some kind of cool possibilities for even like a humble little band. Um, well, I, I think to back up a little bit, I, I feel like the, um, the, that time was really interesting to, and formative for me, not because of what was happening in the mainstream in Seattle. And it wasn't, although I still love, you know, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Alice in Chains, like they're all great. And I liked them at the time and I still like them now. Um, it was for me as a as a teenager. It wasn't so much that I saw those bands and thought, "Oh, um, if you're from here, you can make music and it can be gigantic." It was more so that we would go to see shows at these small, all ages places in Seattle. And at the time, there were, I think, there were only two places in Seattle that could do all ages shows because there was this law in the books that said you had had to have a million dollar insurance policy if you put on all ages shows, and oh, wow. most venues couldn't. It was called the Teen Dance Ordinance, and so. No one did all great name shows. for a band, by the way. Kids. Yeah, exactly. Teen Dance Ordinance. It yeah. hasn't been taken yet. I don't think. Exactly. Probably not. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there were there were one or two places that, for whatever reason, were under the capacity for this insurance policy and had shows. So, you know, we would go across from Bremerton, where I grew up, this Navy town. And we'd take a ferry over to Seattle to the OK Hotel, and we saw Tree People, which was Doug Marsh's first band, and Hammerbox, and early Sunday Day Real Estate shows before they had records out, and. Hazel from Portland and all these bands. Ah, and, so good. It was so great. So it was great. And and you know, Hazel. And, no one talks about Hazel. Hazel was man. <laughs> Hazel is was the fucking best. So good. The fucking best. I still I still love them. I still put those records on. They still sound wonderful. And my our, my friend Sean Nelson has a theory about Hazel that they were the quintessential Portland band of that time, in the sense that you had. You know, this radical kind of feminist lesbian drummer, the townie who just danced, who didn't, you know, you had the, you had the intellectual singer songwriter and Pete Krebs, the, the school teacher playing bass, oh, yes. you know, and the townie who just who just danced and yeah. caused mayhem didn't he had no other purpose in the band. They, yeah, they were so Portland at that time. It's not even funny. But so for me as a kid, you know, growing up, you know, in with MTV where you're given the impression that unless you have long hair, can play shredding guitar solos. Like you'll never amount to anything as a musician. Cause that's, that was just the aesthetic that was pre Nirvana. That was everywhere. Right. There was, there was nothing else, uh, not in the suburbs at least. And so to, to go to clubs and see people who were like really not that much older than I was like loading their own gear on stage, selling their own seven inches and t-shirts and stuff like that became, that was the high watermark. That was like, that's that's what I wanted. That's what I felt was attainable. And that's seemed like, yeah, well, you could play music for a while. Maybe someday I'll be in a band and we can play some shows in Seattle and maybe tour a bit. And 
you know, that would be good enough. That would be great. Yeah. And, you know, I'll eventually have to go back to grad school and, like, do, you know, <laughs> get a real job. But maybe I can have a job that, like, lets me tour for a month out of the year. That would be cool, too. I mean, the bar was so low relative to where we kind of ended up or where we've ended up at this point um, that everything really since that point in my career has been total gravy. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like, you know, really, I think all we ever really thought was possible is if we put out a couple records and... Maybe 10,000 people would buy them and we'd have to like rejoin the real world at some point. If you, but when you were thinking maybe I'm going to need a backup plan as a kid, when you were thinking mm-hmm. maybe I'm going to go back to grad, I have to go to back to grad school at some time, mm-hmm. what would you have done? What would, what would you, if you had just never pursued the music thing, what do you think you would have done? Well, I, I tend, I tend, I tend to uh, dislike the, um, the what if questions about life, you <laughs> okay, know, fair but enough. no, but, but I'll, but I'll humor you because <laughs> we're friends. Um, you know, I, I have a degree in environmental chemistry um, from Western Washington University. So I went to school ostensibly for environmental science. So, you know, I, I, my, I didn't have a plan even when I was in school, I was always dreaming about playing music and, you know, I did well in school because I just, you know, applied myself as much as I needed to apply myself to get, get through it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't leave college or I didn't attend college with any kind of career in mind. Um, not that I thought that music would pay the bills at some point, but just like, I don't know, it just seemed too early to start thinking about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I remember when I graduated from college, I, I, I decided not to go to the, the big, like, college graduation in the football stadium and just go to the school's graduation that, you know, I went to the small environmental school inside, uh, smaller college inside my big college. And I remember the, you know, this may be a story I told before. I don't know if it's, you know, but. So far it doesn't sound familiar. Okay. sounds good. And I remember the woman, the, uh, the girl, I guess, girl, woman at the, at the time who was, um, this college was called the Huxley uh, College of Environmental Studies. Um, she was the Huxley student of the year. She was a uh, woman that was in my classes from the time I was a freshman all the way through I, when I graduated. And she was, a, you know, she was driven. You know, she knew what she wanted to do. This was her, you know, it was very clear that this was going to be her life's work. And, you know, they rattled off all her accolades. All were very impressive and talked about where she was going next and what she was doing. And she was going to grad school somewhere to do some research work. And it's all really cool shit. And I just remember sitting there going like, ah, this isn't. I don't, this isn't me. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, not that I don't care about these issues or care about um, what I studied. You're good for her. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, I, this is, I, I don't see myself following this path. I I, um, I, I don't, I, so I can't say with any certainty that if um, uh, music had petered out at some point and I was, I had to kind of reassess my education and what I wanted to do that I necessarily would have gone back right. to school to get a graduate degree in some kind of environmental Yeah, and I don't even, I guess I don't even really mean that because in a way I think, you know, I like to think about other careers I might have if I had to do something that like had no relation to my current thing mm-hmm. I do. And it's fun because I like, uh, there's lots of stuff that I think seems intriguing stuff with Oh, an- so that's the question. Stuff okay, with animals, okay. stuff with, you know. <laughs> okay, and, I see now. And so I think like knowing what you know about yourself now, like 
what do you think would appeal to you to do other oh, than music? Oh, okay, yeah, I yeah, hear what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but maybe, I do, maybe I, I, I've <laughs> given you like a really, a really fucking long answer. No, to I the, like that other okay, answer. Um, <laughs> no, I think at this point, I, to, I, I, like, I talk to my wife all the time about like, you know what, maybe I should look into physical therapy school. Like, I think I'd really like to be a physical therapist. She's like, she's like, babe, you're a 40-year-old rock and roller. Like, you won the Life Olympics. Like, you're not going back to school. <laughs> Like, you know, you're not, you're not going back to school, <laughs> maybe not the life Olympics, but the yeah. life lottery. I'll say yeah. that I won the life lottery. Like you're not going back to school, become a fucking physical therapist yeah. at 41 years old. It's like, no, but I think I could, I think I'd probably do it. I think if we just kind of tour a little bit less, I could maybe, cause I'm really into this. Like when I go to the physical therapist for like, you know, a little running injuries and stuff like that, I'm like, wow, this is all really You're like, tell me more. Oh man. So, oh, so it's, oh, so that fashion is connected here and then I have to do this. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like I, that's, that's what I would do if I had to at this very moment had to like shift gears yeah would be trying to get yeah mine it. is similar i would be i would be a pilates teacher okay similar thing where i'm just like this is so fascinating yeah <laughs> it's so fascinating no <laughs> okay all right we're done here um so what what artists i mean we've talked about always and i know that that's a young band that you're a fan of but mm -hmm. um but what artists just in the past say 10 years have you know especially artists that maybe are farther along even in their development than always Mm -hmm. Have you been kind of impressed by? I mean, I think I think I was just talking to somebody recently about how much I'm just really loving the new Tune Yards record, and I just I think Meryl's just a genius, and I not only do I think she's a genius, I just I think she's an absolutely wonderful human being, and and a really she you know she is you know unbelievably creative and and uh, has a voice that is so much bigger than her kind of you know, physical frame. And, you know, so many people, when they hear her records, they envision somebody very different singing the songs, uh, which I always think is really interesting. Um, and, and also she just has, a, she's a very, uh, she's very socially conscious and, and very um, gracious with her, her time and, and, and lends her herself to a lot of amazing causes yeah. and, and yeah. especially in the kind of greater Oakland area. Um, oh, cool. And, and I, I just, I just, I've been a fan of hers and, and theirs for a long time, but um, you know, we did some shows with, with them, I guess, two summers ago and just getting a chance to see uh, her and them every night was just wonderful. And, you know, one of those people that, you know, she doesn't need a lot of rooting for her cause she, they're already doing so well, but I'm always rooting for her and I really like that new record a lot. Yeah. I'm really great. enjoying it. I, I had my first chance to interview Meryl and Nate um, just recently for a session mm -hmm. for XMU, but we weren't in the same place. Just, you know, we've done those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. They're in New York. I'm uh, in L.A., but it was great getting to talk to, to them and to her specifically about just, you know, some of the ideas on that new record uh, of examining race and as a white person, your role in the problems in the world that people are awakening to now and her, she, she, went on a sort of not even a re retreat sounds shorter like a six-month kind of uh, course um, it was about examining your whiteness essentially mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's really fascinating because you know that's an easy kind of thing and I even read things that were criticizing her for doing that or criticizing her for having that be the basis of a song or a creative expression as though it's all very Portlandia or something, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that's sad that um, people need to look for 
you know, look for something fake in something real. Um, but yeah, I think she's amazing and such an impressive talent as well. And I also just think, you know, there's a tendency for even, you know, pretty serious music fans to reach an age where they stop being open to uh, a certain enthusiasm level about new music. They're just like, oh, it can't be as good as it was in the 90s or it can't be as good as whatever your era is that you really fell hard which is t- Which is complete, hor- which complete horseshit. Yeah, exactly. I fucking hate that. It's like... It's really annoying. I it's hate like it. there's good new artists every every month, every year. You know, every there's always... Every year has something... For me, I never stop in a year having... Where I'm just like, what the fuck? Well, yeah, and I think I think it's... I think what happens is that... Uh, and you know I'm as guilty of this as anybody is. You just you you lose the ability, or you you keeping up becomes less of a priority for you. Yeah. So because life is busy, in all fairness, people yeah. have busy lives. And you know when I was in my early twenties, and I literally had no other interests except for music, I had all the time in the world to just be listening to music and searching out new music. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've developed other interests. You know, I read more. You know, I'm I'm just spending less time on a computer clicking through. I guess I wasn't doing that in 1998. Right. But like, you know, yeah. I'm spending less time searching out new music than I did. You got to read those physical therapy texts. Oh my god, yeah. I'm so I got so much schoolwork. Um, <laughs> but that's on me. That's that's. It's not that music. I, I mean, I I say this often, but there's never been a better time to be a music fan than right now. it's just there's not and because not only do you have this unbelievable wealth of recorded music you know behind today you know that is all at the just right at your fingertips whenever you want anything you want anything you want is there but if you're into you know avant-garde music or weird shit or things that are just off the beaten path shit that isn't played on the radio in the town that you live in you can find it so easily. You can find communities of people who can help point you towards, you know, whatever kind of genre of music that you're interested in. And, you know, so I just I've, I just think it's, you know, if I'm not listening to a lot of new music, it's because I'm too lazy to do so. It's not that it's not out there. And when you do feel like either a explicit urge to be like, I need to I need some new music in my life or it floats into your world and captures your attention how does that happen nowadays? I mean, do you have a do you have like an internet radio station that you listen to, or do you go to the record store like you used to and see what looks cool? Or I think at this point, I'm I'm I usually just on a streaming service will just listen through new releases, like the same way that I used to go to a record store on on release day and just buy a bunch of stuff and just check it out. Or you'd heard one song on the radio and then you're like, oh, I'll buy this thing, check it out. You know, now it's now I'll just kind of go through and just kind of smash or trash stuff. Right. And just be like, "Ah, I'm not into this, you know, uh, or like, oh, I'll watch a video by somebody like, oh, that looks interesting. And then listen to more of the record. It's like, I like that single, but not the record. Um, And sometimes I'll let, you know, an algorithm just put together a new music playlist and just like put it on shuffle while I'm working around the house or whatever and be like, oh, what was that? Oh, that was really good. Right. Oh, let me check. And then, you know, drag the record over and like, I'm gonna listen to that record later. And when things really start making an impression on me, I'll go and buy like the vinyl of something. So if it's gotten to the point where I'm going to the record store and buying the vinyl, that's a record that I want in my life longer than just the five or six times I might listen to it on a streaming service, which I seem, I, I feel even as somebody who makes records in this new economy of how we listen to music, I feel that's a pretty... You know, I, I, I'm at peace with that 
um, arrangement and transaction where, yeah, you know, not all, not everything you listen to is worth buying. It's just not. <laughs> um, but the things that are worth, you know, buying, I believe should be bought on vinyl and you should be, you know, look through it and hold it, read the liner notes, you know, because that's another level of relation that you can have with a piece of music when you're actually holding it. And, and you have all the information about the record right in front of you as you're listening to it on a turntable. And for me, not every record I listen to, I want to have that right. long-term relationship with. Absolutely. Or buy a ticket to a show or whatever because, yeah, I mean, I think the ability to stream music and not have to buy records that you end up not liking just because you thought the cover art was cool or because mm-hmm. the review said it was good, but then you realized you don't like the same stuff as that person or whatever. Like, that was how we did it back in the... You just bought a lot of stuff that you hated immediately, but you now yeah, owned it. Right. Maybe you would sell it back for a dollar. Maybe you would let it collect dust for a while. Or you, But it didn't mean you were listening to it and had become a converted fan. It just meant that that was the only way to sample stuff and maybe you love it, you know? So I think it's great to be able to listen to literally anything and decide for your own, on your own whether you like it enough to buy it. But if you're not spending, if you don't spend an actual dollar on a thing you claim to like or love, an artist that you claim to love, then you're not doing it right, you know? Like, in, in my, you have in to my... spend an actual dollar on the artist you love, kids, Whatever it may be, maybe it's a doll- giving a dollar to a charity that they support. Maybe it's buying a T-shirt at a show that your friend brought you to. Maybe just give a dollar because that's the best way I think for it to work. I, and I think that kind of works its out, works itself out naturally, anyways. Because you know, you know, as I mentioned, Tune Yards. If if I'm a kid and I hear this podcast and you know they're a fan of what I do and they're like, oh, Ben's talking a lot about Tune Yards. Maybe I'll I'll check that out. And they listen to it and they go like, oh, I really like this. And then they form a relationship with the record or, you know, singles from other records or old records or whatever. And then, you know, they're coming through on tour. It's like, oh, I want to see them live. It's like, well, you just fulfilled your, yeah, you fulfilled your, you know, part of the deal, the, the social contract that you, that Jenny Elsky was throwing out there by <laughs> going to the show, yeah. you know? And, and I also, th- I think too, I, I think, I think there's always been this amount of people making music in some capacity. We've just haven't, it just all hasn't been as accessible as it is now. You know I mean? There, there were a number when we first started, and certainly before, there were just so many barriers to getting music into a record store where people used to go get music. Yeah, you know, you know it's there were some there were some stores, and there was like a, a record shop in Bellingham where we started that would stock cassettes. You know, at the you know if you really if you like were nice to them and you knew somebody that worked there and you sweet talked them, they might put your little like five song cassette at the front desk. You know, I was like, look, give me four of them and I'll call you if we sell any of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it was the 90s and cassettes had not come back around, sure. which is, which is, you know, as, a, as, a, as an older person now, it's hilarious yeah. that cassettes are back. It's, it's hilariously hilarious. It's hilarious. But, um, but yeah, you know, that we made cassettes because we couldn't afford to print CDs or seven inches. So, yeah, we'll just burn, burn some cassettes and we'll put them at the record store and maybe someone will buy one but you couldn't get shows you couldn't go on tour with a cassette no you know you couldn't like you couldn't book a west coast tour on a four song cassette but you can book a world tour on a four song ep yeah it's like streaming you know on spotify and apple music and whatever else now yeah um and you know i'm sure the same amount of people were making music in the mid 90s as they are making music now it's just that you you as a listener's ability to be aware of their existence was dependent upon 
the music being available to you. And if it's on cassette in a record store in Bellingham, Washington, it's only available to you if you live in Bellingham, Washington. Yeah. So we're, you know, the whole, the complaint was like, oh, there's just too many bands now. There's too many people putting out records. Like, now you just didn't have access to, you just, it was, you just yeah. Didn't, yeah, you just didn't know. It's, I think the same amount of people have always been making music. It's, it's certainly not a really awesome way to make a living these days. So it's not as if the, the cash is rolling in and that's why people are making records. They're making records because they can't not make records. Yeah. They have to do it. I think that's a fantastic note for us to wrap up on, Ben. Awesome. Thank you so much. Of course. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, well, let's get to this archive clip. And as I was mentioning earlier, I I had a lot to choose among from these various interviews I've taped with Ben over the years. Since 2005, when we first met, when I was on assignment writing about Death Cab for Cutie for Rolling Stone... Um, And I thought about featuring something from that very first interview, but then I got to what you'll hear coming up, which is this one question and answer from a 2008 phone interview Ben and I did. And I just really liked what Ben had to say uh, about the early days of Death Cab for Cutie and also the band Ra Ra Riot gets a shout out in this clip. So let's have a listen. This is your sort of desert island question, but if you could only listen to one Death Cab album for the rest of your life, what would, what would be the one the one of record of ours that, that uh, I would have to listen to for the rest of the time? Yeah, if you had to listen to one of your records for the rest of your life, what what would it be? You know, I I, I think I would probably take um, even though it's not my favorite record, I would take the first album. I would take I would take something about airplanes, and I, I would take it. Like I said, not because it's my favorite record or I think it's the best record, but I just think that, you know, that time in my life, and I think I can extrapolate to my bandmates, but just for the sake of this, I'll just say me. You know, we were, you know, there was no knowledge. There was, there was no kind of even thought that, like, this was even going to get out of that little house in Bellingham that we recorded it in. Like, we recorded in this little tiny house. We lived, like, in a group home. We all lived in when we were 20 right. or 21 time and you know it was just and you know it was a record that we recorded in between work and and uh and school and and kind of like phone calls from our parents about what we're going to do after we graduated from college and and all that kind of stuff and there's and and we had like one quote-unquote good mic you know and, and it was just a really it was a, it was a it was a it was a time of virtually no expectation and it's just you know i look back and you know i look back on that time you know not um you know, not not with kind of rose-colored glasses that it was any better than it was or anything like that. But it was just, I, you know, that's a really that's a really kind of special time for for any band when you are able to kind of truly make music in a in a bubble. And you know, they, that, there's that old adage like you have your entire life to make the first record. Yeah. And for some people, that is an incredibly stressful kind of thing to do. But for us, it was just a really really kind of wasn't a self-conscious ex, you know experience at all it was just really fun and you know like you know we had to cut a hole in this in the in the grate in the ceiling to like lower mic cables down in the living room to record drums and we had a roommate named 
Grime, who was like trying to finish like his senior year of college, and we're banging away all the time in the living room of all places, like trying to record drums, you know. And it's like, and you know, it was, and it was, it was just a really, um, you know, really kind of, uh, really kind of innocent and fun time in my life. You know, I don't necessarily want, I don't look back and says I would want to go back and re-experience that, but I think that, you know, I, I, I went and saw this band called Raw Raw Riot. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, and. And I'd never, I'd heard the name, but I never really kind of, I never had really, you know, heard the music before. And I, I really liked the show. And, but, you know, I saw these kids on stage and they, like, they, they all, they, and like, I was sitting there going, I thought these kids remind me of us when we were like 21 years old. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they all just graduated from college and they're all thrown into the van. They're all going on tour. It's like, I remember what that was like. Like, I remember how fun that was and like how, you know, and, and how there was, there was an ambition at that point to kind of. But you didn't really know what you were even really chasing, you know. You, know, you just want, you, like, that was, that's the point, that's the point in most people's lives where they really give it a shot, you know. Like, yeah. you get out of school, you have a little time before you really kind of have to, before you kind of really try to kind of make this, make, quote, unquote, the band work, you know. And it was just, and they were having so much fun, and they were, like, they were just jumping around all the place, and they were all kind of awkward in this really endearing way. And it was just, like, and I just, was, and I just, you know, seeing them, I, I, I was, like, it was just, I just, I was, I was just really at 30, I'm 31. I'll be 32 in August. Like, it was just really, it, it just it made me feel, like, as I left the show, I had this just really kind of overwhelming sense of, like, I'm, oh, yeah, this is, this may be a part of my past, but yeah. this is something that's happening every day with, with young bands, and it was just so exciting and inspiring to see that kind of energy and drive in this group of just really nice kids who were just like, you know, who, I mean, just kind of reminded me of the way, the way we were at that age, like kind of, you know, like endearingly awkward, but, but still just like throwing everything they had into being on stage for this 45 minutes in some weird fucking town that was like probably farther away from home than any of them had probably been, you know what I mean? It was just really great, and I, I you know, I guess we'll kind of see what happens to them, but I, you know, this is, I, I, I've been seeing some of those bands and kind of enjoying kind of being of an age now where it's like, I don't have any, I, there's not, I, don't, I don't see those bands and think of like, uh-oh, this band's coming up on our shit. I, it's, it's not like, you know, there's not this like new kid on the block kind of vibe. It's more just like, this is a fantastic. These kids are just like, you know, like this is, this is, this is, it's, it re, it re, through everything that we've kind of been through over the years and certainly, you know, as, as, you know, you kind of get older and you get a little more set in your ways and you get a little bit further away from where you came from. You know, it, it's nice to kind of go out and see bands like this and, and be kind of reminded where you were when you started and why you, why you started what you did. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 14 of LSQ. And again, slash, as always, thank you to Ben Gibbard for taking the time to talk with me and answer all of my nerdy questions. And and not all of them, actually, because there's always more I want to ask when I get a chance to talk to Ben. So maybe we'll do another episode of LSQ at some point appropriately down the line. And Death Cab for Cutie are going to be on tour a whole bunch now, now that they've got this new album out. So just, you know, check their website, maybe bookmark it so you're in the loop on upcoming dates near you. There will be plenty. And uh, yeah, we've got lots to look forward to here on the Little LSQ podcast. The next episode will feature two new interviews with Katie Crutchfield, who performs as Waxahachie, and from the band Speedy Ortiz, Sadie Dupuis. So it'll be Katie and Sadie in the next episode, a few weeks down the line. 
And then I'm excited to bring you, I think, probably a two-part episode with Connor Oberst a little closer to late September, early October. So if you haven't yet subscribed to LSQ, now is a good time to do that. And you can reach me, as always, with feedback on Twitter at Jenny LSQ. 